2007, November 28th. Today is lecture number 44, Comets. All right, so we're getting down to the little niggly bits of the solar system. And in fact, today is really the last subject. Thank you, David. The last subject for the solar system proper. And we're going to talk about comets. And the reason for talking about comets at this stage is because, as we saw yesterday, when we get out past the orbit of Neptune, we're getting out into the zone of the raw, icy materials left over from the formation of the solar system. And it's a huge reservoir of material. So we're much more likely to find real, pristine, raw material out in the outer solar system than we are on the inside, where an awful lot of sunlight and other processing is going on. The problem is the outer parts of the solar system are just way the hell out there. They're way far away, and it's hard to get out there, hard and expensive. In 40 years of space flight, we've only begun to reach the outer solar system, much less study it in detail. But it turns out we don't have to go to the outer solar system because of the phenomenon of comets. So the key ideas today is to introduce comets, which why am that introduction? Because these are, in fact, all comets are icy visitors from the outer solar system. The trick, of course, is catching them as they come by very quickly. Comets have very, very long elliptical orbits, which means they spend most of their life in the outer solar system, but for a very brief period, they come in close to the sun. As they get close to the sun, the bright sunlight begins to sublime the ices on their surface, the dead dust and gas gets liberated, and they generate these gigantic tails and huge comas that can stretch for many hundreds of millions of kilometers behind them. They're very, very spectacular. There are two basic families of comets, the so-called long and short period comets. The reservoirs from which these come will turn out to be the Kuiper Belt that we studied yesterday and something called the Oort Cloud, the very outer edges of our solar system. We'll take a look then in, in a little bit of detail at the structure of comets. They basically have a bright nucleus and a coma, which is the actual substance of the comet. And then the very, of course, distinctive tails of a comet, the hair of these stars, are the dust and ion tails. And finally, what are the comets made of? Well, we've learned a great deal about that over the last few years, and we'll introduce what is now referred to as the dirty snowball model for comets, which is a description that's held up very well under some recent testing both from spacecraft as well as observations from the ground. Comets are basically, to get right, cut right to the chase, comets are basically small chunks of ices and dust that are leftover materials from the outer icy portions of the solar nebula. They are, in effect, the raw materials out of which most of the solar system formed in. And many of them are certainly the youngest comets. The ones that are just now dropping into our solar system are probably pristine material sitting out there for four and a half billion years in a literal interplanetary deep freeze. However, when they're out in the outer solar system, they're boring because they're frozen. But if you take a, any, any ice, be it carbon dioxide, water ice, methane ice, etc., and you put it in a vacuum and you subject it to heat, you never really melt into a liquid. You go straight from a solid to a gas. It's a process called sublimation. As that, as the, so as a comet, as these ice balls fall in towards the sun on long elliptical orbits, the sunlight causes the gas to literally boil off and sublimate away. That gas is carried out behind the comet by the solar wind and by the pressure of the sunlight, even pushing the photons, pushing against the material. Furthermore, in addition to ices, there's little bits of silicates and dust and fine particulate material. Remember the very fine dust particles that were originally part of the solar nebula of the sun that eventually coagulated into rocks and planets. The individual dust grains probably still survive in their original form and they're locked in the ice matrix. 
But when the ice matrix sublimates away, these dust particles get liberated into space, and we see them stream out behind the comet, and we get a pair of beautiful gas and dust tails that go streaming out from behind them. The sunlight catches this material, and we get this spectacular display. Very, very bright, great comets can stretch many degrees across the sky. Some of them could even go literally from horizon to horizon in size if we pass close enough to it. The tails can be hundreds of millions of kilometers long, the size of the distance from the Earth to the Sun. These are spectacular objects. You'd think they were huge, but in fact, the inside of this comet is really, really small. Its display is quite disproportionate to its body. Turns out there are many faint comets that appear in the sky every year. In fact, a very bright comet unusually burst into sky. Uh, <coughs> excuse me, this, this um, comet, oh gosh, why did I just forget the name of it? What's the, what's the comet, David? Holmes. It's Comet Holmes, thank you. I keep wanting to say Comet Newton for some reason. Comet Holmes, which suddenly burst into brightness. That's your name? What? Oh, you, okay. Okay. It's a great comet. You can still see it. We showed, they showed it in the telescope last night, right? It's, it's still a naked eye comet. It's absolutely unbelievable. But naked eye comets are relatively rare. Probably a really bright naked eye comet with a spectacular tail. This is Comet Hale-Bopp over here. Occurs every decade or so, and they're called great comets. However, it's the fact that these things are very nondescript and very faint until they catch the sunlight and suddenly bloom into these gigantic comets. They just appear literally out of nowhere, pass through the nighttime sky over the course of literally weeks, and then vanish once again into space. And so for many, many centuries throughout human history, comets have been seen as, as objects of awe, beauty, and fear because they, you could not predict them. They were thought to be portents of, well, both good and bad, and often bad because a sudden appearance of something in the sky might mean the displeasure of the gods. In fact, as we go back through history, we find many depictions of comets, sometimes in quite remarkable places. For example, on the top, here is a coin from the reign of Caesar Augustus, the first great Roman emperor. There was an appearance of a comet. In fact, it was the appearance of Halley's Comet made its way onto the obverse side of a coin. It was such, an, such a spectacular event. It made its way onto the coinage of the empire, as if to say the empire was being blessed by the appearance of this portent from the heavens. The Turks, here's a beautiful representation from the ceiling of a building in Turkey of the Great Comet of 1577. This was a comet that caught the attention not only of, of people around the world, but of two particular astronomers, Tycho Brahe and Johannes Kepler. Johann Hevelius, now coming into the age of Newton, began a systematic telescopic study of comets. He was really, Hevelius was really the first person to study comets with telescopes and sketch their various shapes and forms. These things appear in artwork. For example, there are, there are old, I, I could go on with page after page of this thing where you have comets appearing as, as flaming swords in the sky and things like that. But it was Hevelius who first really gave us the distinction between nucleus and coma and tail. In fact, the word comet comes from the Latin word for hair. They thought they were often referred to as the hairy stars because they looked like a, a woman's long tresses blowing behind them in the wind. Now, in addition to being seen as, as, as various per, pieces of art, even into the modern age, when you think, you know, the age of reason, people would cease to fear comets. Here's a French cartoon of a comet from the year 1857. It shows this comet as, a, as an old witch hag smashing into the earth and destroying the earth while the moon sort of looks long and goes, ha, ha, ha. Or, well, actually, this is a French cartoon, so it's on, ha, ha, ha. So really getting amused by the cartoons. Basically, people even began to fear, car fear, fear comets even into our own century. It was the previous century, the appearance of Halley's Comet in the beginning of the 20th century, just before the First World War, 
One of the spectroscopic signatures of gases in the tail of the comet was cyanogen, CN. Well, you combine cyanogen with H and you make hydrogen cyanide. So the people thought the tail of the comet was poisonous. The path of the Earth brought us through the tail of Comet Halley. And so people were making a mint selling the gullible uh, comet pills to ward off the poison gases. And gas mask sales went up dramatically during the 1910 appearance. Well, in fact, it's Halley's Comet that really brings us not only as a comet of importance and wonder, but it was also a comet that was actually one of the stepping stones to the modern world. In 1705, Edmund Halley, who we've met before, he was the great steward of Isaac Newton, noted that the, or, the positions in the sky of the comet of Great Comet of 1682 matched the orbit predictions according to Newton for previous comets that had been recorded in the years 1531 and 1607. So Halley made an absolutely remarkable prediction. Remember that all through human history up to this point, nobody had ever predicted the appearance of a comet. They suddenly appeared in the sky and left as quickly as they came. But Halley was able to use Newtonian physics and predict the orbit, and he made a very bold prediction. He said that in the year 1578, the great comet of 1531, 1607, and 1682 were one and the same object. They were on a long elliptical orbit through the solar system, and it should appear in the sky again in 1758. That's a gutsy uh, prediction for Edmund Halley because he was an old man in 1705. He would not live to see his prediction actually come, come true. People doubted it, still thought it was crazy, but remembered it. And on Christmas Day of 1758, Halley's comet appeared where Halley said it would in the nighttime sky. It was probably this observation, perhaps more than any other, that galvanized the idea that Newtonian physics probably was right, or at least good enough to be able to predict the return of a comet. It was a spectacular triumph of Newton's laws. And the comet is now justly known as Halley's Comet in his honor, even though he is not the discoverer. He was the person who recognized his, his presence as, a, as an object in our solar system whose orbit could be predicted. The orbital properties of Halley's Comet has an extremely elliptical orbit. Up through the talking about the planets, the highest ellipticities we talked about are 0.0-something. Oh, the asteroids might get up to 0.15. You had to get out into the Kuiper Belt before you got stuff at 0.45. Halley's Comet is 0.967. Remember, 1.0 is a parabolic escape orbit. So these things are about as elliptical as you can get before they actually break into open orbits and escape from the Earth, from the Sun altogether. The semi-major axis is only about 18 astronomical units, which gives it a period of about 76 years. However, because of this eccentricity, the close approach to the Sun or aphelion is 0.6 astronomical units between the orbit of Venus and Mercury. It spends most of its time in the outer solar system. Now, this period is not, I've not given it exactly. What the, what's going on here? 74 to 79 years. Kepler's third law tells me P squared equals A cubed. Why can't I state it exactly? Because comets are so small, the, the gases jetting off them actually alter their orbit. They can speed them up and slow them down. Furthermore, they're so light that when they, in particular Halley, makes a number of close passes near, but not quite near enough, to the planet Jupiter. And Jupiter actually tweaks its orbit. So this range of periods represents the fact these such, such small objects are being gravitationally and rocket, if you will, exhaust from their own gases pouring off battered about the solar system. They're really small objects. To be affected this way means you've got to be intrinsically small. The nucleus of Halley's Comet is only a few kilometers across, as we're going to see. Here's the orbit of Comet Halley, shown uh, the outer solar system, Jupiter. The inner solar system here is Mars. Uh, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, Neptune, and I've shown, of course, the, the, the large dwarf planet Pluto. Here's the orbit of Halley's Comet. 
by Kepler's second law, this roughly 76-year period, Halley actually spends most of its time out here beyond the orbit of Uranus. It's only during that brief year or so that it plunges in through the inner solar system that the, the gases begin to melt and you can actually see it as a comet. How many of you saw Halley's, how many are old enough to have seen Halley's comet during its last appearance, which was 1985-86? Yeah, it kind of sucked because it turns out that you really had to be in the southern hemisphere to get a good view and the Earth was badly placed. The Earth was about as far away as you can get from Halley during its inner solar system passage than it can get. So it was kind of a letdown. Here's the great Halley's Comet. We've been hearing about it through history and it kind of let us down. But it wasn't always a letdown. The ancient Chinese probably made the first observations of Comet Halley that we can, we can recognize in the records with good enough timing. The first real European observation that we are sure of meaning post-Roman Empire, comes from this remarkable woodcut. This is from the Nuremberg Chronicle of 684 AD. What's remarkable about it is both that it was a, it was a well-timed observation of Halley, but look at this thing. It's a bright, stellar nucleus with a long, multifaceted tail. This is not a whimsical representation or a, or a, uh, or, or a, you know, a figurative representation of, of comets as flaming swords. This is the high middle, this is the deep dark ages. And here is perhaps one of the most realistic, the first realistic depiction of a comet in any artwork we know of in any culture. And it comes from the 684 appearance of Comet Halley. Comet Halley also appears in another great artwork, the Bio Tapestry, appears in the, during its apparition in the year 1066. Who remembers what happened in the year 1066 in European history? So, back there. Not the Magna Carta, that was 1216. 1066. Yes, sir. William the Conqueror, the Battle of Hastings. William the Conqueror, the first and last in successful invasion of the island of England from, from northern, uh, northern France. Uh, this is depicting King Harold, who was the, uh, the Saxon king at the time of England. He was about to get himself stomped by William the Conqueror. William's wife, made this beautiful tapestry. If any of you ever go to France, to northern France, to Bayeux, go to the cathedral. It's one of the most remarkable, simple museums in the world I've ever been to. The tapestry is more than 80 meters long. It wraps entirely around the building. It's hand-stitched. And here, in Latin, it says, Isti mirant stella. They marvel at the star. And here is a representation in cloth and tapestry of Halley's Comet in its appearance. And a courtier here telling Harold, there's a star up there that's meaning bad things. And of course, the bad thing was William the Conqueror was coming to kick his butt, take his country from him. It also appears in another place in history, in this 1304 painting by Giotto di Bondone of the Adoration of the Magi, a beautiful triptych in a church. The star of Bethlehem is predicted, depicted as, the, as Halley's Comet, which appeared bright in the sky during the year of Giotto. This is also quite a remarkable drawing. For those of you art fans, Giotto, Giotto was one of the first artists for whom you can see individuals in art and the aggressive use of perspective and light and shadow. What we're seeing here is the transition from the Middle Ages to the Renaissance here shown in this remarkable artist. If you ever get a chance to see this, it's just an absolutely beautiful depiction here. And it's one of the earliest prediction, depictions in what we would call high art in Europe in the transition between the Middle Ages and the Renaissance of a comet and again it's a realistic depiction of a comet. Of course by the time of this of the 1910 appearance of Halley's Comet um, the rise of photography led to some of the first beautiful photographs of Halley's Comet's appearance and of course it became it captured the imagination in the popular culture. Here's Harry Lincoln's The Halley's Comet Rag. 
I've been looking for a recording of this. I haven't been able to find it anywhere. So if any of you ever come across this music and play an instrument, you know, give it a try sometime and tell me what it sounds like. Every, every decade or so, roughly, a big enough comet comes down through the solar system. It's close, inner solar system is close enough to the Earth to get bright. And if it becomes really naked eye bright so you can see the tail beautifully, it's referred to as a great comet. And as we've seen, a number of these have been influential in history. The Great Comet of 1577, which we saw in a Turkish drawing, was very influential because it was, in fact, Tycho Brahe's observations of the Great Comet of 1577 that made him realize that that comet was not orbiting the Earth, it was orbiting the Sun. It led him to his Tychonic system, and his desire to prove his Tychonic system led him to push the state of the art of naked eye observations to the highest level. And, of course, when that data got into the hands of Johannes Kepler, we got the three laws of motion and the beginning of the scientific revolution of modern astrophysics. Here's a beautiful comet from the year 1858. It's interesting, this particular depiction is very nice, even though this is a bit of art showing the, the appearance of this comet over Paris. And this is Comet Donati. Um, it shows the two tails, the ion tail coming straight back and the cur long curved dust tails. One of the few depictions of that as clearly as it is here. Comet Ikeaseki in 1965 was one of the last bright naked eye comets. I was only four years old when this thing came through, so I have no memory of it whatsoever. But older professors I knew said that, in fact, it was visible in broad daylight, and it was notable because it came during the early ages of the space age. Comet Hale-Bopp, most of you probably got to see Comet Hale-Bopp in 1997, I hope. Who saw Comet Hale-Bopp? Oh, good. This was a great comet. I really have a great fondness for this comet. Uh, not only was it a beautiful naked eye comet that actually delivered, it was one of the first times I ever got to see the bright blue ion tail. And it also has one other uh, notable thing is that I, I uh, well, let's just say that I asked a certain person out on a rather high-risk date to go out late at night and go see Comet, comet Hale Bopp and uh, married her in 2003. So kind of good to me, too. And, of course, last year we had another great comet, Comet McNaught, 2007. It was kind of a sucky comet from the northern hemisphere, but if you were lucky enough to be south of the equator, it was an absolutely spectacular comet. Probably the most spectacular bright comet since Comet Ikeaseki in 1965. It was so bright, this little inset here, it was, nucleus was actually visible in broad daylight. It was one of the brightest, quickest comets, an unbelievable comet. I, did, I didn't get to see it at all. <laughs> I got down to the southern hemisphere in March and it was gone. It was, just, it was just, just the way comets are. They come in, they go. Comets fall in two basic classes, the long period and the short period comets. We divide them, in fact, there's a very natural dividing line at about 200 years. And the reason for that 200 years is really complicated and still not fully well understood. But there's a very strong bimodal distribution. Those with periods longer than 200 years are called the long period comets. They have very, very long elliptical orbits. In fact, the longest of these are almost parabolic. These are many of these things. There's only about 700 of these or so known. These things are on such long orbits that their orbital periods can be up to many millions of years. So some of these may be, in fact, very, very raw, pristine comets coming into the inner solar system for the very first time. Comet Hale-Bopp was a good example of a long period comet. So is Comet Nought. 
Short period comets are those with periods less than 200 years. They have elliptical orbits, but they lie relatively close to the ecliptic plane. Long period comets can come from just about anywhere in the heavens. They can come from straight down above the celestial, celestial poles if you want to. But those short period comets know something about the ecliptic plane. And that tells us that these comets have gotten in there because they've come from a reservoir which is confined to the ecliptic plane. And that likely reservoir is, in fact, probably the Kuiper Belt. They've been then kept in the ecliptic plane by gravitational interactions with the, mostly with the planet Jupiter. There are about 200 of these known. Some of them, in fact, orbit fairly close. They're not very elliptical at all. Comet Halley is probably the most famous of the so-called short period comets. So the long period comets probably come from a region that can come from virtually any direction. They come from a very, very long distance out to hundreds of astronomical units away. And so these things come from a region which is probably spherical. Whereas the short period comets come from a flattened region, the outer reaches of which tend to get into the trans-Neptunian zone. The fact that there was such a pileup of period less than 200 year comets whose perihelion furthest from the sun points were out beyond 30 to 50 astronomical units beyond Neptune led Gerard Kuiper in the early 1950s to predict the existence of a belt of pre-cometary material which we now call the Kuiper belt. Another fellow named Edgeworth also made a similar prediction at the same time so some people call it the Kuiper-Edgeworth belt in his honor as well. So, well, I just sort of basically gave away my next slide. The short period comets come from the Kuiper belt. What about those long period comets? Those long period comets come from a nearly spherical region which may be as much as 20 to 150,000 astronomical units away at the most distant. 150,000 astronomical units is halfway to the nearest star. So we're getting into the transition between solar system and interstellar space. The estimate from the small number that actually get tickled out of their orbits by probably passing nearby stars and fall into our inner solar system is there may be 5,000 billion potential comets in the Oort cloud. Now that sounds like an awful lot until you realize how big the volume of the Oort cloud is, and there just isn't you just wouldn't see them very much. But if you add up the typical sizes of these things by 500 billion, there may be between two and 40 times the mass of the Earth of material, or even more by some estimates, out in the Oort cloud. What we're seeing in the Oort cloud is basically the leftover reservoir of the true raw material, the icy raw material, left over from the formation of our solar system. Here's a cartoon of the Oort cloud. Ignore the fine structure here. A lot of the material is probably shares the similar plane that we have to the original solar nebula, but it is also more spherical in its dimensions. And this is consistent with the fact that comets in these long period comets can come from virtually any direction in the sky. Whereas the Kuiper belt is this flattened zone between 30 and 50 astronomical units just outside the orbit of Neptune, and in which is the source of the short period comets. You cannot see the Oort cloud like this because the, the comets are very far from the sun, they're very, very faint, and they're really tiny. So this is a notional picture. This is basically what we think it would look like if we could suddenly make all the comets light up super bright. But in fact, you could barely see it. In the space between comets here, this is even more empty than the asteroid belt. So we, we have dynamical evidence of the existence of an Oort cloud, but we, if, I think it would be basically entirely impossible to fully map out the Oort cloud in detail like this. So here's a case where we have to infer the presence of a structure in the solar system by those object, those few objects that make it down to us and gives itself away by its orbital properties. Well, this is where comets come from. What about those comets? What do they actually look like in detail? Well, the structure of a comet is sort of a dirty, dirty snowball. It has a nucleus, which is a dirty snowball of ices and dust, 
probably only a few kilometers across. Most comet nuclei would fit very comfortably on top of and within the OSU campus. Well, it wouldn't be very comfortable for us, but they're not that big. They'd fit well within the Beltway. Even the biggest ones would fit inside the Columbus Beltway. They contain probably 99% of the mass of a visible comet is in this actual region here. The other 1% is kind of in a very tenuous wafting of gas is blowing off all the time. It's this dirty snowball that's the source of all the gas and all the ices and dust and junk that flies off into the coma and the tail when they, when they plunge into the inner solar system. Now, if we look deep, this, this is what's hiding deep inside it. If you look through a telescope at a comet, you're not seeing the nucleus. In fact, this bright point of light is not the nucleus at all, but the immediate halo of gas around it is called the coma, the hair. This is a very low-density cloud of gas and sublimated dust off the dust and gas sublimated off the nucleus, and it could be about 100,000 kilometers in size. That's why it actually looks like something. So you see the bright center deep in the middle is this virtually invisible comet nucleus, and then there's this very, very bright coma or head that forms around the comet. Now this coma down here, as that gas begins to blow off, eventually it leaves the influence of the comet and gets picked up by the solar wind and solar radiation. It gets swept backwards away from the comet, forming the long characteristic tail of the comet. There are two tails on a comet. Comets always have two tails. A dust tail, which is made primarily of the dust particles that have been freed from the ice matrix. They're swept back by by the, uh, by the bright pressure of the sunlight, not the solar wind, but the sunlight, photons push against it and they sail back away. Because they're solid particles, they reflect sunlight. So if I take a spectrum of the dust tail, I see a white spectrum of the sunlight. I basically see the reflected spectrum of the sun. These tails can be anywhere from 1 to 10 million kilometers long. Some of the longest actually have been known to get up to almost 100 million kilometers in length. That's a good fraction of an astronomical unit. Now, this, they're virtually colorless because basically they're just simply reflected sunlight, just like a cloud. But what's really interesting is this blue tail, much fainter, called the ion tail. This is atoms of gas and molecules inside coming off the comet. They catch the ultraviolet photons from the sun. The ultraviolet photons rip electrons off the molecules. And it turns out that molecules, particularly carbon monoxide plus, which is carbon monoxide with one electron stripped off, makes a bunch of really, really bright, you get a hot, thin gas. A hot, thin gas produces an emission line spectrum. Because it's a molecule, it's an emission band spectrum. And it turns out it has a lot of emission lines in blue light. So this is a beautiful picture of comet hale bopp And what we're seeing is the emission lines from this gas. <coughs> These tails can actually be, are swept back by the magnetized solar wind that always blows off the sun. And these tails can be almost 100 million kilometers long on average. They, they actually persist for a long time. So what you see is the, the, dust, the dust tail tends to be somewhat curved because the little particles are actually orbiting, whereas the ion tail gets swept straight back, pointing away from the sun. Very beautiful. Now, the nucleus, deep inside comets, we've only passed a few spacecraft or been able to bounce radar off of a handful of comets. They tend to be a few kilometers across. The biggest one is Halley, which is around 16 by 8 kilometers across. Here's a, a, deep, a picture from the spacecraft Deep Space One of Comet Borelli. Uh, they're very low density. When we've been able to measure their masses, we find their density is 0.2 grams per cc. Well, they're made of ices, so why would it be 0.2 grams per cc? Ice is 1 gram per cc. And the answer is they're probably porous. They're basically shot full of holes like Swiss cheese. 
They're very, very dark. In fact, they're some of the darkest objects in the solar system. They're 4% reflective because they're covered with carbonaceous crud. This carbonaceous crud makes them very dark, but we also see impact craters on them that modify the surface. Here's a few pictures for you. This is Comet Halley, taken with flotilla of spacecraft, all European, Japanese, and Russian, because U.S. Congress canceled the U.S. space missions because of lack of money. Uh, got this beautiful picture here has been returned by the Giotto spacecraft, um, very appropriately named. Shows uh, the jets of material blasting off of the comet as the sunlight hits it in the direction of the sun, and this material is what jets out into space. Here's a beautiful picture of comet, uh, periodic comet Vilt 2, which is about five kilometers across. It's basically a pockmarked hamburger of, of ice and carbonaceous junk. Now, we'd like to know what's inside of a comet, so in 2005, the Deep Impact mission was launched towards Comet Temple 1. When Comet Temple 1, they got close, the, space, the bus spacecraft took pictures of the comet and fired a 500-kilogram copper weight instrumented with cameras into it. So before impact, you saw this beautiful, uh, beautiful picture of the comet, and then we smack, hit the thing with the impactor, blew a hole in the side, and knocked out pristine material at every telescope on Earth that could point to it. It was mapping away at the thing, trying to figure out what was going on. Lots of surprises. Lots of water ice, lots of carbon dioxide, carbon monoxide. The big surprise was the detection of olivines. Olivines are basically minerals, um, silicaceous minerals that are not expected to be in the outer solar system. So there's a couple mysteries involved with this as well. Well, the basic model we have for these is that comets are what are called icy conglomerates or a dirty snowball. Basically, it's water ice and carbon dioxide or dry ice makes the ice matrix. You freeze ammonia, which is one of the principal uh, volatiles of the outer solar system, junk, basically dust and chunks of rock, leftover silicate and dusty materials from the formation of the solar system. And because these form way out beyond the frost line, you get carbon and complex carbon compounds. Sunlight causes low-grade carbon chemistry. These things are covered with black carbonaceous organic goo. Well, we'd really like to get up close and personal and bring back a piece of a comet. We've done a little bit of that with comet return missions passing through the tail, but you'd like to land on a comet and get a good look. The Europeans have a mission called Rosetta on its way to Comet Churyumov-Gerasimenko, which in the year 2014 should hopefully put the Rosetta lander down on the surface. It's a very light surface. It will anchor its way in, drill inside the comet, and give us our first look. But I don't know about you guys. I don't want to wait until 2014. So, with your kind indulgence, you know... Comets are made of common materials. They're made of water, carbon dioxide, ammonia, and all kinds of other good stuff. So, you know, these are the primary organic compounds found on Earth in various forms or easily manufactured. And so it isn't too much of a stretch to be able to go into kitchen supply stores, Grater's ice cream, um, oh, break into a copier, go get some graphite uh, lubricant, a little bit of sand for silicates. And uh, David, you want to come up here and give me a hand here? I'm going to tie this off. It's a little hard to tie off with the... Uh, I'd tie off this... Yeah, why don't you tie off my uh, apron here with rubber gloves. So what I'm going to do, since I'm here in this chemistry lab, I'm going to make a comment. So we'll start with 
a hardcore volatile that sublimates dry ice, easily obtained from graters or from OSU University, thank you, David, uh, chemistry supply. Uh, get it in five-pound blocks here, so I got enough in case I make a mistake. Now, to make a comet, you need dry ice, water, graphitic carbon, silicates, sand, this place sand, not from the cat box. Um, ammonia is a really nasty gas at terrestrial conditions, so I'm going to use anhydrous ammonia. I'm cheating a bit, but it's basically ammonia in water. So, David, I might want to ask you to stand back since I'm wearing goggles and you're not. So to make a comet, the way you make a comet is as follows. Take a chunk of dry ice, take a mallet, crack it. Dry ice is very, very friable, so it's very easy to crack. First, you take a bucket and you line it with some plastic, because it will, in fact, break your bucket. And then you just you go crazy with the mallet. Now, I've been doing this demonstration since I was a graduate student at UC Santa Cruz when, when Comet Halley came through. We had a special class on Comet Halley, and I was the TA. And we were also in a chemistry room. I thought, wow, this would be really cool to make a comet. And I found a recipe from the JPL website. It somewhat disturbs me, however. Ah, this is good. So now you get the stuff nice and dusted up, a few chunks. But we need it to basically be fairly undifferentiated because comets are fairly undifferentiated objects. Okay, so we got a nice powdery with a few chunks of carbon dioxide. Now we're going to add silicates in the form of sand. We're going to add carbonaceous stuff from the outer solar system in the form of graphitic carbon. This graphitic carbon is actually a laser copier toner. We're going to lay in a few spritzes of ammonia, anhydrous ammonia, in this case. So there we're getting our NH3. Okay, now it's going to start getting really messy here. And since I'm not the person who does the laundry in my house, I'm going to get in a lot of trouble if I don't get this out of the way. And then, of course, you need to have the primary volatile of the outer solar system, water. Oh, yeah. And you stir. Now, what I'm really, this is a very simple little experiment. I'm always sort of slightly disturbed by the degree to which the way in which I present this has been strongly influenced by the Food Network. I feel like I should be telling you every step along the way here. Ah, oh, yeah, there we go. So you give it a good stir. And you feel it starting to consolidate. Okay, you know, I, was, I used to joke I used to feel more like you know, you know, Julia Childs, now it's more like Emerald, so you know, bam. All right, add a few bit of more sand, gather it up, knead gently, so it consolidates nicely. Now what we're going to get is the carbon dioxide is going to form a volatile that's sublimating, the water is going to form an ice matrix around it, as the carbon dioxide volatilizes and flashes into CO2, it's going to leave gaps in the ice matrix. So we're going to get a porous, nasty, bubbly, burbling, carbon junk, cratered mess of comet nucleus. All right. So here, in fact, is a pretty good substitute for a comet nucleus. It's leaking junk as it begins to uh, sublimate in the bright light. As the carbon dioxide sublimates out, it leaves the water ice matrix behind, so it's kind of porous. There's chunks and bits. 
As it gets really hot, it begins to break apart. As it breaks apart further, it makes, oh good, there's all kinds of black stuff falling off, all kinds of sand falling off out the back. If I go, oh, it makes a little bit of a tail, but not much. Every now and then, comets break into pieces, and those pieces go flying off, a process called calving. We've in fact seen a number of comets come completely apart. It's a chemistry lab. How, how possibly bad could it be in here? So it's very easy. The comets, not surprisingly, are made of the same basic organic materials we see here on the Earth. Why is this so interesting to us? Well, remember, in the formation of the early solar system, the Earth formed in the hot inner regions of the inner solar system. There are the hot inner regions where there aren't any volatiles. There is no carbon dioxide. There is no water ice. It's too hot for it. So where's it going to come from? Well, part of the answer is look at the size of the reservoir of the hundreds of billions of comets in the Oort cloud. There were many more like that four and a half billion years ago. So we have the Earth, hot, silicates, iron, completely molten, blowing its volatiles off and getting pummeled over and over again by ice-bearing, volatile comets. Deuterium to hydrogen ratio, the hydrogen isotope ratio found in comets is much more like ocean water than it is like any other hydrated mineral in the Earth. They carry carbon dioxide, they carry nitrogen, they carry ammonia, they carry water. So very likely, in fact, there's a very good reason to believe that most of the carbonaceous organic compounds on our planet, most of our oceans water, and in fact, a lot of the gases that make up the Earth's atmosphere, the atmospheres of Venus and Mars, were not formed entirely with the Earth. They were probably delivered to the Earth over the course of its formation by comets crashing into the Earth. As those comets have been cleared out, along with everything else during the epoch of heavy bombardment, of course, thankfully, comet bombardments do not occur. So our interest in comets is many-fold. We'd like to find out what they're made of because they may, in fact, be the pristine remnants of the original construction materials of the solar system. They may, in fact, be the original deliverers of the molecules of life to the Earth. They may be, in fact, the deliverers of water to the Earth. We may owe our existence, strange it may seem, to many thousands or millions of frozen snowballs that have hit the Earth. Any questions? Okay, well with that, we have finished the section on the solar system, and so the next part of this class we need to talk about other solar systems around other stars, and then life elsewhere. If you'd like, please come on up and have a look at this wonderful mess of stuff.